Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Jonah again, chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. This week we celebrate Thanksgiving, a time when we recall the great things that God has done, and uh, remembering those hopefully express gratitude to him. That's what Jonah chapter 2 is about, the great things that God did to save Jonah, and Jonah's gratitude, his expression of gratitude to the Lord for his salvation. So we can just consider this our Thanksgiving sermon, if you will, a a warm-up for giving thanks later this week. Let me read the text. It actually begins with the last verse of chapter 1, verse 17, and then through the whole of chapter 2, which is only 10 verses. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. There are two distinct parts of this text. There's the uh, prose part, the narrative part, which is kind of the shell of the text, and that's uh, verse 17. The Lord provided a fish to swallow Jonah. Verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. And verse 10, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. That reading is complete in itself. In fact, it's so complete in itself that some have wondered whether this other part, verses 2 to 9, should even be in there. Maybe it was inserted later, or all kinds of theories abound. But those verses are there, and that's the second part of our text. The poetic part, Jonah's description of his near-death experience, and the song of praise or poem of praise that he wrote about it, which is in verses 2 and 9. So we're going to begin with the first part, the kind of the shell of the text, the first and the last, and then we're going to look at the, the, the middle part, the second part of the text, the poetic part, and uh, that gives us uh, perhaps two lessons to consider this morning. The first, from the shell of the text, the narrative part, the first and last part, we get this truth. God made even the animals to serve him. God made even the animals to serve him. When we hear the story as children, we're filled with fascination. It's as exciting as hearing about the giant dinosaurs, which just capture kids' imagination. It's fun to draw pictures of a giant fish swallowing little Jonah whole. But when we read this story as adults, our response is probably not fascination, but skepticism. This sounds like the ultimate fish story, does it not? One tall tale too big to be true. 
So since most all Bible scholars are adults, there have been many, many attempts to explain what we have here in some more intellectually satisfying way. Some have uh, uh, sought to bolster this account with modern parallels, examples of people being swallowed alive and having uh, survived it. And there are some such accounts, though frankly, most of them have been discredited and refuted. A more popular approach has been, especially recently, has been to consider the whole account fiction. Uh, to see um, that it was never meant to be history, but it's an allegory of something. And then once we start into looking for what it's an allegory of, the, the, the whole sky is the limit. I mean, the human mind has unlimited uh, ability to concoct allegories of things. One of my favorites is that uh, the uh, Jonah's represented Israel, and the fish represents Babylon that takes Israel into captivity in a foreign place. Well, that's just one. There are many. This morning, I would suggest to you that what we have here is an historical account of real events. Our problem is simply that we have no place in our thinking for such supernatural things. Many years ago, in his book, True Spirituality, Francis Schaeffer observed, and I quote, our generation is overwhelmingly naturalistic. There's an almost complete commitment to the concept of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. But Schaefer continues, according to the biblical view, there are two parts to reality, the natural world, that which we see normally, and the supernatural part. When we use the word supernatural, however, we must be careful. The supernatural is really no more unusual in the universe, from a biblical viewpoint, than what we normally call the natural. The only reason we call it supernatural is that we don't normally see it. But here for a moment, we do see it. And what we see is not a God who is far off or uninvolved in the natural order that he has created, but a God who made even the animals to serve him and serve him they will whether it seems natural or supernatural to us folks this is clearly the perspective of the bible throughout its pages we see god interacting very uh, much in the natural realm as we understand it but in ways that sound strange to our ears listen to some examples uh, and, and talking specifically about god interacting vis-a-vis uh, -vis the animals in Psalm 104, we read, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you form to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And when you send your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the earth. God, in the natural order of things. Or consider again Job 38 and 39, some verses from there where the Lord repeatedly rebukes Job for his lack of understanding of God's role. God says, do you hunt the prey for the lioness? and satisfy the hunger of the lions? 
Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like, leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the, does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? God in the natural order. Jesus himself talked this way in Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air, he says. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet, what? They somehow find some food? No. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. In fact, according to Psalm 148, even the animals are created to praise God. There we read, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. You see, we're just wrong to think that because we can study and understand something about zoology, that animal life has nothing to do with the Lord, the Creator. The Bible everywhere says that even in regard to what we call natural law, God made the animals to serve him. But then the Bible also speaks of God using his creatures in unusual or supernatural roles. Actually, many examples in the scripture, I just uh, gathered a, a few here. In 1 Kings 17, when God commanded Elijah to go hide in the Kareth uh, ravine, he, God made him this promise. He says, you will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. And that's exactly what happened. He did what the Lord told him, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Or remember Daniel, when he was thrown into the den of hungry lions in Daniel chapter 6? In the morning the king came calling, saying, Daniel, is it possible that your God might have, uh, might have rescued you from the lions? And what did Daniel report? I quote, my God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions, and I've not been harmed. Or, or remember Numbers 22, we talked about Balaam. He was determined to bring a curse on God's people, and God stopped him by using his donkey. As he was riding off, uh, his donkey saw the angel of the Lord and had this good sense to stop, and Balaam didn't even see him. And the donkey wouldn't go, and Balaam got off and started beating the donkey. And then we read at this point in the account, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? You see, in all these cases, God used his animals in a supernatural way, a way that defies our understanding of what animals do. But we ought not be surprised, for God made even the animals to serve him. That's exactly what we have here in Jonah too. God prepared fish, some kind of creature, maybe something we know, maybe something we, didn't know, we don't know about. But God prepared it for this occasion and ordered it into service at just the right time. And we ought not be surprised, for God made these animals to serve him. You see, here we have a particular, particularly pointed in its incident to jar us out of our naturalistic mindset and remind us 
of the same truth we saw last week in regard to the weather, which is that the sovereign God controls everything. The weather and also the animals he made to serve him. So dear people, we have a basic decision to make as we come to a text like this. Texts that do not fit into our naturalistic world life view. Will we listen to what God says in his word, believing what he says, though it dwarfs our understanding of the world? Do we believe him when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do we believe that? Or do we, his tiny little creatures on this tiny little earth, know better? Before we ever look at the evidence, have we already decided with the world around us that if it is miraculous, it is not historical. Well, if that's our intellectual commitment, we're going to have trouble with Christianity. For the Bible, the Christian faith, is full of the supernatural, full of miracles. Jesus went about doing miracles. He healed the, the sick. He made the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. He turned water into wine. He himself believed Jonah was swallowed by a fish. So if you got trouble with the text, you got trouble with Jesus. In fact, Jesus was raised from the dead. Indeed, Jesus claims he will reconcile sinners to a holy God and raise us from the dead to eternal life. And nothing is more impossible than that. But that's Jesus' promise. His impossible promise to those who trust him. So this morning, along with the Apostle Paul, I exhort you. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have the mind of Christ. We are to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. We are to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And within that whole God-centered, supernatural, biblical world life view, here in the fish, we have just this one little delightful truth. God made even the animals to serve him. Now, but that's not the big lesson of the text. That's just the shell of the text. Which moves us to the bigger truth is our second point. And that is that God saves sinners from death. God saves sinners from death. We live in a Christianity as therapy world right now. We have developed a four-color glossy view of God's involvement in people's lives. We don't talk much about the heinous nature of sin. We certainly don't like to speak of a God of judgment and damnation. Instead, we're much more comfortable about talking about God making our lives better. God uh, helping us manage our money so that we'll be prosperous. God enhancing our health and wholeness. 
God improving our marriage and our sex life. God bolstering our self-esteem and making us confident and bold in the world. In other words, God is our much neglected financial advisor and marriage counselor and shrink. He helps us work our, work our way out of depression and poverty and insignificance. But here in Jonah too, we have quite a different picture. Here the problem is impending death, physical and spiritual. And here God is one tough teacher with pedagogical tools that we would not consider uh, correct anymore. But more than that, God is a deliverer, a savior, who rescues a rebel from total and final destruction in spite of his utter inability to help himself. That was Jonah's experience. That's the story of the text, and that's quite different than what we think we know of God's work these days. Here we see very vividly God saves sinners from destruction and death. Now before we get into the details, let's just talk for a second about the chronology of, the, uh, of things, a sequence of events. There's a lot of considerable discussion about how this all happened, and especially you're dealing with the poetic portion here in verses 2 to 9, and how does it all fit, and, and, and uh, there's some stylistic things. Uh, it's not just a list of events. So let me give you my best attempt at the chronology uh, based on my little bit of study here. The first thing that happens, the, the, the sailors threw Jonah into the, into the sea. And there Jonah floundered about uh, helplessly in the stormy water, finally descending into the deep, drowning. Now, 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 that would not be a time of lengthy reflection or even coherent prayer. This would be a time of sheer panic, accompanied by a cry for mercy. But just before Jonah drowns, the fish swallows him. And from within the, the, the fish's belly, Jonah reflects on his experience uh, in verses 2 to 7 and draws some conclusions, uh, which we have in verses 8 and 9. Though those re reflections were undoubtedly refined and thought more clearly about and written down much later after this event was all over. Finally, the fish unceremoniously deposits Jonah on the shore. Now that's the, the kind of the sequence of events here. Let me talk about a couple of things. When Jonah was hurled into the sea, his first concern was drowning. He didn't go down immediately. In verse 2, he says the current swirled about me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. It was a stormy, tempestuous sea. It was a terrible storm that terrified the guys in the ship. And here's Jonah bobbing around trying to deal with it. I remember in my flying days when we flew out over the Atlantic in the, in the winter and it was cold and the, we see the waves bursting over the bows of these super tankers and, and here we are with an emergency pack that has a little one-man dinghy that's just big enough to barely crawl into, go around you. And just, just picture yourself with, with these giant waves that are coming over the bows of these tankers in your little dinghy and you think, how long would I last out there? And the water's cold. <laughs> that's Jonah bobbing around. Well, he didn't last very long. In verse 5, we hear him losing the battle. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. Jonah was drowning. He was drowning. You know, the few things that fill us with such terror 
has drowned him. That's why waterboarding is such a hot issue. It's terrible. But maybe effective because it's terrible. In my study, I found an article written for the periodical Illinois Parks and Recreation describing for their lifeguards how terrible drowning is. And as part of that article, they give a description written by a near drowning victim, I thought, or, or survivor. I thought I would uh, read that to you a little bit. Here, here's what they say. When the cramp hit me, I sank to the bottom of the lake 12 feet down in a doubled up position. Compounding the racking pain in my trunk was a mounting choking sensation. Try holding your breath and nose after taking a deep breath. Hold your breath until it becomes unbearable, then try holding it a few seconds past the unbearable point. It's a horrible sensation. It would give you a dim idea of just one aspect of how it feels to drown. The pressure of the water caused a stabbing pain in my eyes and ears. Try to keep your head when water begins to seep into your already tortured lungs and your, your body is a mass of pain and you know you are dying. I remember I screamed down there against that solid wall of water. I remember I thrashed and bobbed, but only succeeded in burrowing my head into the slime of the lake floor. That's Jonah. Just a few minutes earlier, Jonah had been so uh, ready to have them throw me overboard, assuming he would rather die than repent. But here Jonah learns something of the bitterness of death, that it's not better than obeying God after all. There in the depths, God allowed Jonah to taste the consequences of his rebellion. Jonah had chosen to go to sea rather than to go to Nineveh. He had chosen to be thrown overboard rather than to pray to his God. And now Jonah faces the consequences of his choices. Don't be so foolish as to think you can escape the Lord's presence or flee his command. He is the life giver. To do so is to choose the bitterness of death. Oh, but the text makes clear here that drowning was not the only nor even the most frightening prospect for Jonah. Jonah saw himself plunging into the darkness of Sheol. Now, Sheol is an Old Testament concept that's very difficult to define carefully. It is clearly the realm of the dead. It's not always, but often associated with darkness and hopelessness and utter despair. In fact, for the wicked, it's sometimes seen as a place of punishment, as we would think of hell. That's what Jonah saw rushing up at him. Not a peaceful end in nothingness, but entrance into the pit of Sheol. Listen to his description, verse 2. From the depths of, the word is literally Sheol, I cried for help. Verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Verse 6. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Jonah, who had been so confident of his ability to flee from the Lord, suddenly is terrified that he might have been successful that he might be forever locked away in a place barred in where God had forsaken him. That's what hell is. Oh, but in the midst of Jonah's terror of death and terror of Sheol, God sent one of his creatures whom he had 
prepared to save Jonah's life. The fish came out of nowhere and swallowed Jonah barely alive. This great fish was not punishment for Jonah. This was Jonah's deliverer. As Joyce Baldwin writes, the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, so providing him with a new kind of transport and protecting him from drowning. Despite everything, he is alive. The split-second timing of such a deliverance from death is ample evidence of divine providence. God saved Jonah from death, physical and spiritual death. And dear people, here's where we see Jesus in this story. Jonah ends his song of praise with the words, Salvation comes from the Lord. That Hebrew word for salvation is the word Yeshua. We hear that word in the New Testament when the angel spoke to Joseph about Mary's son to be born and said, you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua. For he shall save his people from their sin. The Greek name Jesus is the Hebrew name Yeshua. The Lord saved. And sure enough, Hebrews 2 tells us that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for us. Or as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, into Sheol, into Hades. Not almost, as Jonah had, but fully. He took the consequences of our rebellion. But on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. Not just supernaturally spared his life as he had Jonah but supernaturally gave him life back. Just as God delivered Jonah from the pit of death and hell and brought him back into the land of living on the third day, so God delivered Jesus from the pit of death and hell and brought him back to life on the third day. And folks, that's the gospel. This defines both our desperate need and the greatness of God's grace. Our need, like Jonah's, is deliverance from our sin, and its inevitable consequences in death and hell. And God's provision is a Savior who has endured death and hell for us, and now risen from the dead, forgives our sin, and gives us eternal life. Jesus saves sinners from death and destruction. Unless we haven't talked about what Jonah did. That's because Jonah was beyond self-help. He couldn't lift a finger to save himself. He was a dead man. He simply cried, help! He called upon the Lord. Not just any God. Not the God of his imagination. Not the God of the sailors. Not whatever God he liked. But the God who promised to send help from his temple. You see that reference to the temple? It's in verse 4 and again in verse 7. That's an interesting thing because Jonah was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. They didn't worship at the temple down in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. That was not uh, politically expedient for them, so they, they built temples of their own and they places of worship for themselves. It was more convenient and they, they didn't have to cross over the line to go down and worship where David had established the city. But in his time of terror, Jonah knew where to find the Lord, really. Where to address his prayer. He knew that the Lord had promised to hear from his temple. That is application for us 
Well, God has promised salvation in Jesus. No one else. Nowhere else. Jesus is the temple. He calls himself that. Destroy this temple. Raise it in three days. You can think you've found a more convenient way to God, but when you face death and hell, your only hope is to call upon Jesus to save you. And save you, he will. For Jesus saves sinners from death and destruction. Well, our text ends on a rather earthy note. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah's uh, flight from the Lord is over. It got him nowhere. He's right back where he started, albeit a bit slimy and putrid smelling, I suspect. Hopefully wiser from the experience. Perhaps he learned what I hope we've learned in these first two chapters, that though sometimes God baffles us, you cannot escape the Lord. For God controls everything. He controls the weather. He controls the animals. Our only hope in the face of rebellion is that God saves sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, grant us your grace to see this story that many of us have heard and has been sealed in our mind in little child-like um, descriptions. Give us the grace to see it as adults, to see the horror of a life uh, apart from you, to see the greatness of your grace and your sovereignty over all of creation and the links to which you would go to save guilty sinners. For that's our only hope, Lord. Thank you that you brought salvation to us in Jesus. Grant us grace to never spurn you or turn away, thinking that we have hope anywhere else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.